Welcome to the Classical U podcast. I'm Jesse Hake. I'm the director at Classical U. Classical U is a subsidiary of Classical Academic Press, a curriculum and monograph publishing company. At Classical U, we provide training for teachers and parents interested in learning more about classical education, how to deliver this method in your classrooms, in your homes. I mostly spend time talking with presenters and live learning event guests, and we look forward to sharing more with you as you tune in. Thank you. Nate, it is great to have you on the Classical U podcast. We're excited to be recording with you. You're with us today uh, talking about the Humanitas curriculum, I believe, which is exciting in a separate project, uh, not our topic for today. But um, you, can, you can tell us a little bit about that up front, and then I'll introduce you, and uh, we'll, we'll get rolling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, yeah, it's very good to be here. <coughs> uh, the Humanitas line is... Um, my big project, I guess, uh, is the, I'm the lead editor on the project. So it's a, a four-year curriculum, which aims to bring students into contact with primary texts. So uh, the first year, uh, 50 primary sources on Greece, 50 on Rome. Uh, second year, we'll see 100 primary sources bring us through the Middle Ages. Then we've got a course on the American experiment. So that's really fun. That actually is what we were kind of talking about today, but begins with some retellings of uh, Native American myths, and it, it brings us through the colonial period, the Declaration, Constitution, through the Civil War, and all the way up to the centenary. So um, it ends with two sources, one by Susan B. Anthony talking about women's rights and the, and the, need, um, the need for um, equality. Uh, and then the speech that Frederick Douglass gives, it's a, a statue commemorating uh, emancipation. So there's a statue in D.C. that's unveiled um, in 1876, 100 years after the Declaration of Independence. Uh, and it's where Douglass reflects on Lincoln's legacy, uh, the good and uh, the not so good, right? So it's where he he's very grateful for Lincoln, but he also says, you know, it took him too long. And ultimately, in Douglas's estimation, uh, the only reason Lincoln emancipated the slaves was because it seemed at that point in time necessary. He didn't set out to free the slaves. Uh, this is Douglas, right? He says his priority was the Union, and slavery was was second to that. Um, so he reflects on Lincoln's mixed legacy. But yeah, it's a really wonderful volume. The fourth one then is on the early modern period, and that'll be great. That'll bring us from, well, roughly the fall of Constantinople, so uh, right before 1500, 1476, and that'll bring us all the way through into the 20th century. So it's a, it's a massive project, and it's very fun um, to work on. A lot of good work being done there. But yeah, that's what we were, we were talking about in the studio here today. Well, I'm really uh, glad we got you in town on that excuse, and uh, that that is exciting and uh, rather gargantuan uh, work. Uh, I wanted to chat with you um, for the Classical U audience um, about some of your own teaching history and uh, and your own educational background, uh, more in the storytelling vein, um, and uh, but we can get into you know a variety of topics. But let me uh, briefly just give people a background, ask you a little bit more myself about your own uh, story. 
you have, uh, I think, three master's degrees and uh, editing, editing experience, um, and uh, as well as uh, teaching experience uh, in, in the classroom. And I know you you taught for years in the Trinity Schools uh, network, the three three schools there. And uh, <clears throat> would love to hear just a little bit of your own uh, summary of your own educational uh, experience and background. Uh, how how do you end up with three master's degrees? Uh, what are some of your own loves and, and interests? And then um, I'll have some questions specifically about your your teaching experience and the Trinity Schools themselves. Uh, they're of interest. Uh, I would hope to all classical educators as um, one, uh, for a variety of reasons, they're a great organization, but they're one of the three uh, kind of independently, uh, different schools that independently um, started talking about a renewal, uh, you know, going back to a classical uh, model of education and uh, on, on really kind of independent tracks along with the uh, Care Paravel Latin School and, of course, um, Logos in, in Idaho. You've got these three kind of uh, within the same year, you know, 80, 81 uh, people starting uh, organizations that have continued to grow and thrive and uh, provide leadership. So, sure. but tell us a little bit about your own uh, educational background and uh, some of the things you're you're excited about and have loved because I know it's a long list. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, sure, happy to. How far back should we go? Uh, <laughs> suppose <clears throat> might start even just um, in high school. Yeah. Um, this always surprised my my students. I ended up mostly teaching um, various humanities courses, right? So as a teacher, I've taught uh, different humane letters courses, sort of integrated humanities courses, primary text-driven courses um, on American history and letters, European uh, history and letters, English in particular. Um, I've taught courses on uh, art and aesthetics, so thinking about theological and philosophical aesthetics, teaching students how to how to sit and appreciate classical music, um, how to read a painting, right? How to how to sit in front of a painting and and allow it to reveal itself to you. Uh, introducing students to opera and drama, um, theories of tragedy, and teaching them how to perform aesthetic evaluations along the way, right? So. Here's what Aristotle says in the Poetics, uh, in that course in particular. <clears throat> Students read uh, quite a bit of Plato on beauty, and then we read Aristotle's Poetics. And uh, most people would pivot then to something like Sophocles, read Oedipus Rex, which for whatever reason is held up as the preeminent uh, sort of Attic tragedy. But uh, there's, there's some really interesting things in the Poetics. Um, Aristotle says... Which, which strikes you as, as odd the first time you read it. Uh, but he says, Euripides, even if he mismanages some things, is still the most tragic of the poets. So we actually read, uh, it's, it's more of a problem play. It's called Iphigenia Among the Tarians. And uh, the students were asked, is this even a tragedy, right? Here's a play where <laughs> there are three or maybe four, depending on if you count things in the explication, which, which happen outside the the actual play itself um but are but are involved in the plot um deus ex machinus right and aristotle says that's the that's the sign of a of a bad playwright one that really doesn't know his way about plot uh where plot is a single singular unified action um it's a quote-unquote tragedy where nobody dies right uh the basic formula for tragedy is that we see 
someone from good fortune. There's a change of fortune, right? Comedy is where you have someone uh, experience a positive change. Tragedy is where it's a negative change. And uh, here's a play where there's no real suffering. Nobody dies. Um, there is a reversal. Uh, so these are. This is the difference between a simple tragedy and complex tragedy. Um, but it's the. It's not a good type of reversal. And there's also a recognition, but it, it ranks as one of the lowest kinds of recognition that Aristotle. Um, evaluates in the poetics, right? Realize I'm talking too much about this one class, but it was great fun to teach. <laughs> um, and so students then had to wrestle with, okay, so in what sense then is this even a tragedy according mm -hmm. to Aristotelian lines? And some would argue, you know, it's really not. Uh, it's more of a tragic comedy or it's doing mm -hmm. something different. It's expanding the genre, but it seems to have deviated enough that I don't want to say it really is tragic. And other students said, not only is it a tragedy, it's an, it's an excellent one, right? Mm -hmm. So they learned how to perform um, aesthetic critiques. So uh, we read book four of Virgil, right? And they, they performed a reading of that in light of Plato, in light of Aristotle, in light of... Um, Longinus on the sublime, mm -hmm. right? So what are different ways, different aesthetic modes in which I can approach the text and, and evaluate its merits and its, its uh, faults? So those are the kinds of texts that um, texts and courses that I've been teaching. And of course... Let's dwell on that course for one minute. Sure. Since you brought, what, yeah. uh, just give us the, uh, you know, what, what year in, in, uh, and is this a year-long course? Uh, it was, yes. Mm -hmm. This was at a school just outside D.C. Uh, and I was hired to, um, I guess the, the directive was to try to get more students involved in the arts. Mm -hmm. And this was a newly required course. And it, so it wasn't an elective. Every sophomore had to take it. Okay. Yep. And uh, <laughs> I was very unpopular when I arrived because everybody's <laughs> favorite teacher was supposed to have that job. And uh, I was interviewing for an English job and they you know, mentioned what I was doing at Yale coming out of grad school. And they said, would you maybe want to teach a course on aesthetics? I said, what? <laughs> Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> ended up um, taking the job from from that guy. Uh, we're good friends now, so it's all it's all okay. <laughs> and, and the students have forgiven you since. I suppose, oh, yes, most of them very <laughs> very quickly. They fell in love with the course. I mean, it's hard not to when you're yeah. doing things like that. How many years did you teach it? That let me see. I taught that for three years. Okay. Um, and uh, DC, you know, we weren't in DC proper. We were in Nova, Northern Virginia, and that's just a hard place. Mm -hmm. That's a hard place to live, you know, especially on a teacher salary. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so we we just it wasn't sustainable to stay there for long. Um, had some really tremendous students though, mm -hmm. uh, and I've got. I've got former students from there that are all over right now. One of them is finishing up at, at Yale. Um, I've got two students that are at Notre Dame. One's finishing his master's and one is, is finishing undergrad and a handful of students from there at UVA. And, you know, I'm, those are just the five or six that come immediately to mind. Uh, so the other ones will be disappointed. I didn't mention where they are. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was a, that was a lot of fun. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I'd like to circle back to to that specific class a little bit because that does sound fascinating. It is sure. cl clearly uh, right at the top of your your loves uh, and as far as recent teaching experience. But let's let's jump back to um, you mentioned Yale and, uh, and oh right. And, you know you you have I know you uh, have been through the MAT program, uh, Eastern University, uh, Master of Arts in Teaching, and uh, I'd love to hear just 
Uh, you were, I think, threatening to go back to your own high school, you know, starting with your journey. Uh, but give us a little <laughs> bit of a sense of the, the, the loves that have captured your attention in your own, um, in your own uh, education. You know, oh, sure. what's, what's directed that? Sure. Um, you know, and indeed, I, I probably do need to go back to my own school in some way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's when I first encountered uh, classical education. Yeah. Uh, and that was as... Um, as a rival, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I went to a small, a small Christian school in Andover, Minnesota, called uh, Meadow Creek Christian School, and um, a great school. You know, I had a wonderful time there, and and really thoughtful um, teachers, and they pointed me in in the right directions in many ways. And we had this rival Christian school from Bloomington, uh, Bloomington, just <laughs> south of Minneapolis, and <clears throat> they. Wow. Big rivals for soccer, big rivals for basketball. Every homecoming, it seemed, was um, always basketball. Small Christian school, we didn't have football. And um, I don't know. I I remember a handful of games that we won and a handful that we lost. That was devastating because it was homecoming (laughs) and you think things like that matter. (laughs) Um, But, you know, I played Mm -hmm. soccer. Uh, I've I've played since I was four and um, I've coached a good... I don't know, 10 to 15 seasons or so uh, after I started teaching. Uh, And I didn't realize it, but that was, in fact, Trinity River Ridge, the classical Mm. school that I'd I'd come back to later and end up um, teaching at. So Mm. my first experience of classical education was on the soccer pitch, and uh, (laughs) it was beating uh, the classical school, uh, I'm proud (laughs) to say. Um, but yeah, that's a, I mean, it's a great question. What, what sets you on your path and, uh, how do you, how do you come to discover your loves? You know, Mm -hmm. um, this is, this is what I was going to say before I got myself off onto my own tangent, but in high school, you know, I, I loved history. Um, English was fine. Wasn't a big fan. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was, I was very much interested in math and science. I, Mm -hmm. I felt like that was kind of my, that was what I was just naturally good at you know it mm-hmm. came easily it was fun i i come from a sort of science family um <clears throat> and so i thought oh that's what i'll do and uh i had one teacher who as a a junior sat with him in uh, a modernist literature course right so we read uh figures from the early 20th century t.s Eliot and william butler yates williams carlos williams wallace stevens mm-hmm. james joyce mm-hmm. um right uh, Hemingway, uh, Fitzgerald. Those are some of the things that I remember reading in that class. It's uh, remarkable, actually, because I probably couldn't name half as many of even the kinds of things that I did in other classes. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was an important class for me. It um, it made me realize that, well, <laughs> it made me realize that poetry and literature was different than I thought it was. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. I, yeah. I, I discounted it. And um, wow, I was not good at it. Um, mm-hmm. It was hard. Uh, and anyone who's read T.S. Eliot, right, if you've stumbled through the wasteland, you, mm-hmm. you know very quickly that, yes, it is hard. Um, it's it's disorienting. These fragments I have shored against my ruin. Um, but that, that was important. That kind of set me off. And I didn't realize un- until maybe years later, a decade later or so. So I ended up at a small Christian university in the middle of nowhere, Indiana, uh, literally in the middle of three cornfields, um, 
called Taylor University. Mm-hmm. And had some great mentors there, uh, double majored in, in history and English. And I worked very hard at, at English. And mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> I was privileged uh, to spend sophomore, was it? Yeah, yeah, sophomore year, I was over, uh, I did a, a semester abroad. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I was over in England at Oxford. Um, I was a visiting student through Wycliffe Hall. And had tutorials through uh, Regents Park and Balliol College. And uh, that's where I, I started doing classical literature. Um, I did a, a sort of module on the modernists. So mm-hmm. I ended up writing about some of the things that I'd read mm-hmm. years before in high school for the first time. Yep. And um, romantic poetry. And uh, that's the immediate answer to your question, mm-hmm. right? It was it was the romantics. Mm-hmm. Um we called him the Bard, Dr. Barry Webb, uh, because he had <laughs> he had so much poetry committed to memory. It was just you couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents came to visit, and uh, he took us to a local pub where he was friends with the uh, with the public house owner. <clears throat> my dad, you know, kind of asked him at one point. He said, "So how you know you mentioned Shakespeare a few times? Do you?" Do you uh, memorize any? He said, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> several several uh, lengthy passages committed to memory. And my dad pressed him. He, he said, oh, well, what, uh, right, British, good British fashion, <laughs> several <laughs> passages, rather lengthy. And my dad says, what does that mean? And he said, well, I suppose several dozen passages of several hundred lines or more. <laughs> um, and that was just Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I, I read with um, Dr. Webb for eight weeks. Uh, through the big romantics, uh, Blake and mm. Wordsworth and Shelley, mm-hmm. um, Keats, of course, Byron. Uh, we read Charles Lamb, who's not not a poet, but really wonderful essayist, mm-hmm. and uh, Coleridge. Mm. And <clears throat> it was Keats in particular. I still remember. It was a rainy Tuesday afternoon in April. And um, dear, dear old man, you know, he's in a, an office, I guess you have to call it. Um, it was more of a, a closet. And uh, mm-hmm. you couldn't see the walls. You, you'd swear that the roof was, was held up by books. They were just stacked <laughs> every which way. And there was just enough room for his his chair. And uh, you had to you had to move the, the chair for the student out of the way to open the door, <laughs> right? But then there was mm-hmm. ample room. So, you know, he'd put a kettle on and we'd have uh, mm. tea and... Um, and get lost in poetry, mm-hmm. and it was Keats more than anything. I mean, if you've if you've not read the Romantics, you absolutely must. Wordsworth is fantastic, um, lyrical ballads in general. But uh, wow, Tintern Abbey, right? It's mm-hmm. where he says things like um, he reflects on what he calls the best part of a good man's life: his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Um, mm-hmm. Near the end of the poem. He he encourages you. The poem sort of teases out <clears throat> the difference between the experience of nature and um, the tempered recollection of nature, mm-hmm. right? And the comfort that can afford you mm-hmm. in, in later times and times of trouble. And he reflects on when thy mind shall be a mansion, a dwelling place for all beautiful forms, right? And that's just mm. uh, that's just one part of Wordsworth. He's he's really wonderful. Um, 
so uh, get to my tutorials and and uh, the bard would would say um, turn to turn to Keats it's somewhere in the 1300s and uh, I'd frantically be trying to turn <coughs> turn to find the poem and um, it took me two or three weeks and I, I I realized I need to not look for the poem I need to just sit and listen mm. because he would recite every single week uh, he'd recite the poem from memory Mm-hmm. Um, and he embodied in a really powerful way <clears throat> uh, that poetry wasn't just something on a page, right? It wasn't um, wasn't something merely to be studied. You can and should study it, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he embodied the fact that a poetry can be a way of life. Mm-hmm. Um, a poetry has this wonderful ability to... <clears throat> to enhance your life, uh, to expand your consciousness, make you aware of things that have been all around you, but for whatever reason, you haven't paid enough attention to, to know or mm-hmm. realize. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so here he was sitting in front of me, reciting poems, and instead of just enjoying and, and experiencing them, I was frantically looking uh, for the page so that I could mm-hmm. follow along. Well, <clears throat> it was Keats. Um, and uh, it must have been Ode on Melancholy. And uh, wow, I, no, no, go not to Lethe, neither twist wolf Spain for its poisonous wine, nor suffer thy pale forehead to be kissed by nightshade, ruby grape of proserpine. Right, and and um, something about the the lilt and the and the rhythm. It's the meter in Keats, Ode on Melancholy. Neither twist while Spain tight rooted for its poisonous wine. Yeah, it's so good. But <clears throat> you get to the, you get to the end of the poem. And he says, "She dwells with beauty, and beauty that must die, and joy whose hand is ever at his lips bidding adieu and aching pleasure nigh. I in the very temple of delight, veiled melancholy has her sovereign shrine." The scene of none save him whose strenuous tongue can burst joy's grape against his palate fine. His soul shall taste the sadness of her might and be among her cloudy trophies hung. Well, <laughs> that was it, you know. Um, I've been ruined ever since. And uh, in many ways, my, my life, certainly my academic career, but a lot of my life has been... Trying to cram as as many poems into my into my mind as I can. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> that's the that's the stuff that you you hear it and you get chills and um, you begin to inhabit it and and you go, wow, uh, wh- why would you pursue anything else? Mm-hmm. Right? It's it's uh, it enlivens and enriches life. So um, that even was though sophomore sophomore year of college. That's right. Yep. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. And. Uh, yeah, that was a, that was the turning point. Yeah, um, and as I said, you know, I wasn't good at poetry, and I have worked very hard at it, and I, I've given a lot of time over to the study of and the memorization of uh, poems. But that would be a, that would be a chief love, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, poetry has a way of. Um, well, I don't want to be uh, over dramatic, melodramatic, but I think that really. Uh, it has it has the potential to to shape your soul mm-hmm. if you read the right poems in the right ways. Um, 
So I found myself drawn to poetry um, ever since, and been you know very uh, very blessed to interact with a lot of the the folks that I have. Um, so yeah, that was sophomore year of college, and had to go back to the states after that for two years, which was uh, tough because it's you mm -hmm. know the British system is just so very different from mm -hmm. the American, and um, I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. So I, I <clears throat> graduated and, and uh, went over to Ireland to try to get more of the British system. So I read for an MPhil, Master's of Philosophy, in Anglo-Irish Literature mm -hmm. at Trinity College, Dublin. Mm -hmm. um, so that's in the heart of Dublin. Uh, Trinity founded in 1592, mm -hmm. uh, Queen Elizabeth. <clears throat> to educate the, the Brits, the ruling class, who had the misfortune, I think Jonathan Swift said, <laughs> the misfortune of being born in the barn, right? Being born <laughs> in Ireland. Um, so you get the, you know, the, the Anglo-Irish or the, the English, and then you get the Catholics who are the mm -hmm. native Irish. So um, I was there and a really wonderful experience there. I had some great classmates and wonderful wonderful academic mentors and um, I read once again uh, James Joyce mm -hmm. um, that's another love mm -hmm. James Joyce is absolutely a love um, <clears throat> but read through you know a, a wealth of Irish literature and uh, you don't realize how much good stuff comes from such a small place and so mm -hmm. you, you begin you know naming but you have Joyce and you have Yeats and you have Samuel Beckett mm -hmm. um, you have George Bernard Shaw right um, it really important texts and figures, uh, Oliver Goldsmith, uh, Castle Rack Rant, all of these things. Mm -hmm. So that was really wonderful. And I, I found myself drawn to the, to the modernists in particular. Um, I think Yeats is such a good poet. Uh, <clears throat> and he manages to reinvent himself so many times. Mm -hmm. right? he, he's a sort of, he's the last romantic in many ways. Uh, he's a Victorian and he's, he's also a modernist. Mm -hmm. And, um, just stunningly, devastatingly beautiful poetry, but also um, difficult, fragmented, good, modernist verse. Mm -hmm. um, the Circus Animal's Desertion, you know, sort of the last poem in his last collection, uh, beautiful. Uh, he's lost his muse, and uh, he ends with, uh, yeah, I must lay down where all the ladders start in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart, you know, and mm. oh, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> Yeats is the best. But uh, yeah, I, I wrote on theological aesthetics in James Joyce's Ulysses, mm -hmm. and I love Joyce. Um, I think The Dead, simply the finest short story ever written in English, uh, it sort of consummates the short story in many ways. It, it, I think it it exhausts <laughs> a lot of what the short story is capable of. Um, portrait of the artist as a young man is a, is a tremendous mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> novel. And uh, Stephen Dedalus there begins outlining some of his aesthetic theory. Uh, mm -hmm. And I suppose that's really what got me most interested in it. Yeah. So um, Stephen Hero is the original draft for, uh, for what became Portrait. Um, Joyce couldn't get it published, so he you know, threw it into the, into the fire, and his brother Stanislaus uh, rescued it. So we've, we've large <laughs> portions of Stephen Hero, but um, you can see Joyce's development as a thinker by looking at um, it's his uh, discussion of epiphany. Right? Mm -hmm. So epiphany mm -hmm. as it relates to the, to the artist, the sudden manifestation, the revelation yeah. of the thing. 
right? How is it that an artist gets inspired? Um, and so in Stephen Hero, Joyce thinks about epiphany in terms of, um, well, in a passive way, right? So you get mm -hmm. a passive man of letters who is uh, inspired, possessed by something outside of himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and his job is to, to transcribe it before it disappears. Mm -hmm. And then in portrait, uh, and you see this also in, in The Dead, um, you get a different vision of epiphany mm -hmm. where the artist takes on a more active role. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, this is where Joyce says, um, Joyce says, uh, Stephen Dedalus says that um, he feels he feels the call to the vocation. He thinks he's going to join the priesthood. And there's mm -hmm. this um, frightening passage you remember, which uh, smacks in some ways of Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But mm -hmm. Stephen thinks about damnation and, and hell. And uh, ultimately, he he resists. He he doesn't become a priest. Um, he changes route and decides to become an artist. And he says mm -hmm. that he will be a priest of the imagination, mm -hmm. transmuting. What does he say? Transmuting the daily bread of of life or of existence into mm -hmm. right. Uh, and so this is where his aesthetic theory changes then. You go, so the artist's job is to transmute, or if we use a more theological word, to transfigure, uh, mm -hmm. um, transubstantiate mm -hmm. life yep. into art. Yep. And I was hooked. <clears throat> so I, you know, I read Ulysses, um, didn't understand any of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's such a good book. Um, and wrote on theological aesthetics and, and Joyce. Um, and Ulysses, yeah, Ulysses is a love. It's, um, oh, it's as good as Dante. It might, it might even be better than Dante. You know? um, <laughs> now, now you're picking fights. I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> it's, it just, it's, let's see, it's like the Wasteland, you know, uh, he do the police in different voices. It's the original title for the Wasteland out of, um, Dickens. Mm -hmm. And, uh, <clears throat> it, the Wasteland, uh, retells, it's not really the exact way of saying it, but, um, you, you get so much of the tradition revised and rewritten, retold in the wasteland. And mm -hmm. that's what happens in Ulysses, mm -hmm. right? So um, you read Ulysses, <laughs> come up kinch, you fearful Jesuit, uh, stately plump buck mulligan. That's the opening line. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's, a, it's a sort of um, mock mass that they're having, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're shaving and they're shaving cream and um, calls him a fearful Jesuit. That's great. Uh, but... What happens in, in Ulysses? Um, well, it takes place on June 16th, 1904. Mm -hmm. uh, and scholars <laughs> have, have realized when they have questions about uh, Ulysses, um, there's, there's all sorts of, way of, of ways of like validating and finding, thing, finding things out. So um, the first person that read it out loud, start to finish, realized that it takes just about 18 hours to do so. Mm -hmm. And uh, the text itself unfolds over the course of about 18 hours. I might have mm -hmm. misremembered the number, right? But the, the point is, is what matters. It's a it, full stream of consciousness. Full stream yeah. of consciousness, yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, it, it is enacted over the length of time that it would actually take you to, to mm -hmm. enact it. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Um, 
so that's the that's the premise, right? That's the backdrop. You follow uh, Stephen Dedalus uh, in his wanderings through Dublin, and he meets uh, Bloom and some of these other uh, players that are, that are so important in, in literary lore. But while that's happening, we see that Homer is being rewritten. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Dedalus, I mean, his name, right, mm-hmm. uh, connotes, uh, invokes rather, Ovid. <coughs> mm-hmm. um, but he's also a, a sort of uh, new Telemachus mm-hmm. and Bloom uh, a sort of new Odysseus. Mm-hmm. So uh, Eliot published a, a neat little essay on the wasteland and he talks about the mythic mode, right? Mm-hmm. The way that, um, yes, it, it, it seems to be just modern life, but it's retelling some of this older literature. Mm-hmm. Well, what does is, what is Ulysses retell? Uh, yeah, the Odyssey, uh, Dante, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the whole of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, haven't, I haven't had the time to even attempt to do this, but in the Shakespeare episode, uh, Stephen propounds a theory uh, <clears throat> about Shakespeare and his relation to Hamlet, remembering uh, Shakespeare actually has a son called Hamnet, which for all intents and purposes is, is the same name as Hamlet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but he propounds a theory about Shakespeare's relationship to Hamlet. Um, it's just fascinating. But mm-hmm. um, and my that's son Shakespeare loses. Pardon? Is that right? Am I remembering correctly? Does is that a son who uh, Shakespeare loses? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, anyway, sorry, interrupt. Oh no, not at all. Uh, well, Hamlet is is retold. Right? Mm-hmm. So in many ways, um, Stephen Dedalus is uh, a sort of Hamlet, mm-hmm. uh, right? And he wanders about, and uh, not much happens in. Hamlet, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, why Hamlet's delay is the is the big question that critics have asked. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like it could be a pretty quick revenge tragedy, and instead <laughs> it's this you know massive delay and, mm-hmm. and all the reasons he doesn't uh, pursue vengeance or revenge or is it justice, uh, right? <laughs> so Ulysses is retelling that as well. Um, well, Daedalus says non serviam, I will not serve. So you get Paradise Lost being retold. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, the whole of Western literature is retold. There's mm-hmm. actually one episode of Ulysses uh, where you see the the entire development of English prose, <laughs> right? So it begins in uh, a sort of medieval Latin and moves mm-hmm. through Old and Middle English and right up through Joyce's own day. And you go, mm-hmm. oh my goodness, right? So every episode <laughs> of Ulysses is retelling something different, has its own aesthetic um, technique for that episode, mm-hmm. uh, has parallels with different plays from Shakespeare. It's just, right. If, uh, if you, if you ended up with just Ulysses, you would have, uh, in Ulysses, Homer and Dante mm-hmm. and Milton and Shakespeare and more. Mm-hmm. Um, it preserves these things, it enlivens mm-hmm. them. They're, mm-hmm. um, they are a real presence in the text mm-hmm. in a profound way. Um, mm. So that's that's what I wrote on at Trinity, um, and it was just it was it was wonderful. It was great fun. So that's when I started teaching. I came back to the states, and my um, now wife, uh, then girlfriend, fiance, was uh, a grad student. Uh, she's a painter. She was at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design, <clears throat> which was great for me because that was uh, close to home. Mm-hmm. So I went back home and um, got a job at my old rival school. <laughs> And that's where I was really uh, baptism by fire, as it were, into the classical education world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So how long were you there? Uh, it was a short. It was a short stay. I was there for two okay. years. Okay. Um, Did and you coach the team you had once beat? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> no. So your soccer coaching was a later later school. Uh, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The other the other schools I taught at, I, I've coached. But um, what yeah. are some distinctives of um, the, the uh, Trinity? I know there's three schools. Their mm-hmm. original one uh, campus is Green Lawn um, yep. in in Indiana. But um, what what would you say um, are some of their strengths that kind of set set them apart as one of the early leaders uh, or, or exemplars in uh, kind of renewal of classical education sure from the <clears throat> inside perspective <laughs> uh yeah i think um well i think one of the best things about trinity is that they they really know what they're about mm-hmm. um <clears throat> they Everybody rose in the same direction, mm-hmm. right? Every other school I've been at, uh, whether I were actually working there, teaching there, or um, even, I mean, even places I interviewed and, and ended up not wanting to teach at, mm-hmm. places that I've done, you know, consulting and, and teacher training and things, um, there isn't a clearly articulated philosophy of education, mm-hmm. uh, nor is there a sort of commitment to uh, pedagogy. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things that makes Trinity really special. Um, <clears throat> they have those. Mm-hmm. So so you end up with people that are, in fact, rowing in the same direction. Mm-hmm. You don't have people, you know, and it can get really petty at, at, <laughs> at schools, as you can imagine, right? Um, you don't have a chemistry professor saying, why would you waste your time with poetry? Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have uh, a history a history teacher, you know, throwing someone, someone else's class under the bus. Mm-hmm. Um, so Trinity, Trinity knows what, what they're about um, and they're good at going about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, <clears throat> I mean, they even, they'll be very honest about this too, right? <clears throat> if you're not a good fit or if you if you object, right? If you think um, <laughs> the textbook, students have to have the textbook, you know, mm-hmm. and they go, well, no, we're going to read the Mayflower Compact, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we're going to read the Stamp Act and the Sugar Act, and right? We're going to spend uh, a month reading through the Federalist Papers. And you go, yeah, but, you know, I want I want to do something. They, you know, they go... Well, that's really not what we do here. <laughs> um, and if that's what you if that's what you most value, that's that's great. And there's a lot of places where you'd be a tremendous teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's really not what we're about, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I think that's something. Um, yeah. yeah. Wow. Uh, culture. Yeah. I think they do a great job in in many ways with school culture. Mm-hmm. You know, they get it they get it right in many yeah. ways. Um, there are no. I'm assuming this is still true. It would be a shame if it weren't. <laughs> there, there are no uh, academic departments, mm-hmm. right? So in other schools I've taught, you're in the English department or the history department, and nary the two shall meet, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and you end up with these. What do you end up with when you have departments? Unnecessary administrators. Mm-hmm. Um, you have uh, more potential for uh, squabbles. Mm-hmm. Right? You have uh, teachers who themselves 
uh, end up teaching the same course year after year after year. And so they, they've lost potentially, right? They've lost a, a sense of wonder. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've lost the desire to learn new things. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen a lot of teachers uh, <clears throat> fall prey to the old lie that um, they couldn't teach something that they don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so at Trinity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I taught seventh and eighth grade literature and composition. I taught ninth and tenth grade human letters, American and European, with a, with a British emphasis, respectively. Uh, I taught a science course. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I worked as the director of college guidance. I taught um, a course called what was it called? World Issues. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <clears throat> so that's really neat. Mm-hmm. You end up then with a, a faculty that not only can, but is actively encouraged to teach across the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So somebody who might teach algebra frequently, right, every mm-hmm. year or, or at least every other year, they might also be called upon to, to teach a humane letters course, mm-hmm. right? Um, they'll, 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 teach, uh, they'll teach literature and composition eighth grade. Mm-hmm. Um, what else about culture? We had a – this is such a, a tremendous – boon for a school there's a communal office mm-hmm. i was going to ask because the um, campus at Greenlawn, where i spent a few days on a project and visiting mm-hmm. had that and it was beautiful it yeah. was like 30 i think <clears throat> I, that's probably a little high but uh, this whole huge room dedicated and all the teacher desks in little pods of three but completely open no uh yeah. you know cubicle walls yep. or anything yep um, so all sorts of benefits to this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, our desks were put into little uh, groups or clusters of maybe six, mm-hmm. right? So four desks facing each other, and then two on the on the ends. Mm-hmm. And um, administrators would be very intentional about picking and choosing who was at which little pod, right? Mm-hmm. So somebody who's teaching chemistry, somebody who's teaching human letters, somebody who teaches calculus, right? Mm-hmm. And we're all there together. And uh, if you've ever been at a school where there are departments, often these are the kinds of people that not only don't, but like can't <laughs> have things to, to talk about with each mm-hmm. other. Um, well, I, 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 it was so like, I didn't realize how special this was because it was the first place I had taught and I only had my own high school to, to compare it to, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I still remember in my first week uh, sitting there and, uh, I'm reading Beowulf and I have to start teaching Beowulf in, in eighth grade. And um, the French teacher said, oh, I love Beowulf. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, yep. when did you? And then um, the woman sitting across from me who was teaching chemistry. She she leaned back. She didn't say anything, right? Mm-hmm. But she leaned back and she listened. And I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this, that. And, <laughs> and all, all of a sudden, uh, she jumped in and said, well, I wondered about that too. You know, I haven't taught it for four years, but right. And uh, so you, you you realize what you have at a place like Trinity is um, mm. you have an actual academic culture. Right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they call themselves a community of learners. Yeah. And um, they don't, I mean, sure, <laughs> people who uh, quote unquote specialize in something get hired, but they don't hire specialists, mm-hmm. right? They hire people to teach across the curriculum. Yeah. And the office is set up in such a way to encourage and foster conversation. Yeah. Right? Well, that's a real pain when you have grading to do because there <laughs> are always fascinating conversations happening. 
Mm-hmm. But of course, what kind of problem as a classical school do you want to have? Yeah. Do you want to have a problem where um, teachers are so in love with learning and the life of the mind that they that they sometimes struggle to find time to grade papers? Mm-hmm. Or do you want to have a school where people close their doors and never interact with each other yeah. and where their classroom becomes their classroom, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the other benefit. Uh, the classrooms that it's not yours. Yeah. You show up for second period to teach there, but your desk isn't there. Your, uh, your you know... <laughs> bad art or your 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 banner <laughs> from you know whatever football team you right uh, can't happen to care about is hanging on the wall so they're very intentional in cultivating um an academic space mm-hmm. right it's not yours it's not the students it's it's shared and these conversations spill out of the faculty office and they spill into the classroom mm-hmm. so i can't tell you how many times i went into pick whatever class yep. and we started by talking about what I was talking about with other faculty members. Yeah, yeah. So this fosters community then between students and faculty because they're invited to participate in the very same conversations that yeah. faculty are, yeah. are participating in. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. So I don't know. Um, those are a few things about, yeah. about yeah, Trinity. Thank you. Yeah. That's great. Oh, one more. You're going to edit most of this away, right? So, <laughs> like, I'm talking too much. I'm sorry. Um, another thing that makes Trinity uh, wonderful, I, I said school culture, but it's the it's the families mm-hmm. and the it's the community. So I'm a little bit biased coming from Minnesota, uh, but you get some, some really intelligent folks out that way, right? Very well educated. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and... Um, They've chosen to send their kids there because, right, <clears throat> they don't value grade consciousness. Uh, Trinity keeps grades, but but grades will never show up on a student assessment. Mm-hmm. Um, there aren't online grade books. Mm-hmm. There's no right uh, when you meet at the end of semester. You meet with all of the the faculty, mm-hmm. with the parents, to talk about the students' performance, and 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 uh, it's wonderful. It's like a oh. Maybe it's a half an hour, mm-hmm. maybe not. Maybe it's 15 minutes, I can't recall. <clears throat> but we'll, all of the faculty get together and they'll talk about James's sense of wonder, mm-hmm. whether or not he's diligent with completing work. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about um, uh, his performance uh, in terms of like participation, right? We'll talk about areas that he can improve. At the end of all of that, and the parents have a chance to dialogue and ask questions, and the older students will come along. Mm-hmm. So for freshmen, um, seventh, eighth grade, right? It's just the faculty and the parents. Well, you get juniors and seniors. uh, They will come and sit and listen to their teachers talk. And you have to own up to what you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't (laughs) turned things in or Mm -hmm. I have slept in class. I have, you know, um, really powerful. It it, uh, equips and enables the student to take ownership of their own education, their own Mm -hmm. learning. Well, at the end of all of that, we slide you know, a, an actual report card over that's got mm-hmm. marks on it and say, you know, here's you know, James's marks for the for the term. Mm-hmm. And we would recommend that you not share them with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, that's that's your prerogative as your as, you know, parents. Mm-hmm. Um, but the student is there in all of the, uh, the, the communication that's actual, actually personal. And uh, yeah. 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 Well, so the they, older students. Yeah. Yeah. yeah as I yeah. said. Yeah. <clears throat> but uh the students love learning. Yeah. 
And yeah. uh, that's something that I've really not seen anywhere else yeah. either. They're catching that fire of the teachers um, that they're feeling with the teachers are feeling with each other. Absolutely. And um, <clears throat> and they're not distracted by you know yeah, yeah did I get a B or a C or an A? That's right. Um, they're they're thinking about. Uh, what was I excited about? You yeah. Know, uh, was I was I diligent when I wasn't excited? Those, yeah. Those more human factors. That's great. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, that, I mean that's a glowing account, and uh, that, thank you. Um, let's uh, <clears throat> let's get uh, if you can uh, move through. You've you've I think only done one of your three masters. Okay. If just quickly uh, sure. <clears throat> finish your own story, and uh, I'd love to circle back to. Um, um, maybe just uh, we could close even with a description of the class that you kind of started with. Um, yeah, yeah. Unpack that uh, for teachers or, or maybe a highlight or two, you know, your favorite classes you've ever taught and sure. what, what was what was so effective about them. But. Yeah. Well, so I left Trinity River Ridge um, <clears throat> after two years to go back to grad school. So um, trying to trying to think, think through what I wanted to do and um, <clears throat> uh, ended up getting getting married after my second year and uh, our honeymoon i say because we never had a honeymoon um <laughs> was two years in new haven connecticut so we got Beautiful married place. <laughs> yeah, well sometimes <laughs> some parts uh yeah some parts of it are are really beautiful and some uh you wouldn't need to see but, <clears throat> um yeah we got married on august 5th and uh packed up on the 7th and drove across the country, and uh, I started grad school within two weeks or so. Mm -hmm. So um, I was a student at the Yale Institute of Sacred Music, uh, the ISM. The ISM is, um, well, it stands for the Institute of Sacred Music and Religion and the Arts, but mm -hmm. uh, those kind of get left out. Um, <laughs> I think the ISM originally was at... Um, at Union in New York, uh, mm -hmm. and it migrated from from there to to Yale. <clears throat> so it's an interdisciplinary group. Uh, students are either enrolled as graduate students at uh, the Yale School of Music or at the Yale Divinity School. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so given my background with Joyce uh, and, and theological aesthetics, I found this program and I thought, wow. Uh, <clears throat> here's a chance to do a master's in uh, basically theology and the arts. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's in an interdisciplinary um, environment. I'll have the chance to take theology courses at the Div School, uh, philosophy courses. Uh, you also have the chance to take um, classes downtown. Mm -hmm. So I took a few different PhD level English courses, um, read, uh, uh, well, Swift and Pope uh, took a course on mock heroic with, uh, his name's Claude Rawson. He was one of uh, C.S. Lewis's final pupils at mm. Oxford before he, he left and went to Cambridge. Um, so studied with, with him in particular. I sought him out and took a few courses with him. Um, and uh, Harold Bloom. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so I, I wow. ended up reading Shakespeare with Harold. Um, Mm. And that that was uh, a dream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's that's what I I did there, uh, and that was in theology and the arts uh, and and literature particularly. So I I spent a year reading Dante with Peter Hawkins. Um, I, I read Shakespeare with Harold, and that was um, 
Hamlet, uh, Macbeth, The Tempest. Uh, we were looking at um, some of these big figures, mm-hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> so Falstaff. So we, we read the, the Henry ad, but mostly um, we spent most of our time in Henry the Fourth, Part One mm-hmm. and, and Two, right? So study of Falstaff, uh, Antony and Cleopatra, uh, you know. Oh, A Winter's Tale, mm-hmm. really wonderful. The first time I'd read A Winter's Tale. It's not my favorite play, um, <laughs> but I read that there. Uh, and I took courses in theological aesthetics. Um, we recorded a couple of episodes with Junius Johnson. Sure, I think yeah. you, you guys overlapped there yes, in, in that realm, right? Yeah, theological yeah. aesthetics. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I took – I should have taken uh, another course with Junius, but I took uh, – a Bonaventure course with him. Okay, yeah. And, he mentioned yeah. that's his own favorite medieval <clears throat> theologians. So. Yeah, and I, you know, probably like most people, uh, hadn't read any Bonaventure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, or just the the journey of the soul unto yeah. God. Right, is the one that everybody knows. But um, yeah, I so I split my time. I, I did quite a few things in in literature proper and was downtown sometimes and then um, took courses on some of the bigs. So I Mm -hmm. took two courses on Jonathan Edwards, uh, Luther, Calvin, um, and then uh, Bonaventure. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was, yeah, that was great. Um, Genius, I mean, he he knows Bonaventure so well. Uh, And that was, you know, that was a challenging time for me. Um, I took that course my final term. Uh, term there and my son was born wow uh, yeah big big step in life yeah and uh you yeah um <laughs> he was born um early i think four four weeks premature mm-hmm. so i you know best laid plans mm-hmm. uh, had kind of marked out my calendar and where i'd be doing my research and writing my final papers and then um didn't line up no <laughs> and uh there were you know um a few complications so i found myself mm-hmm. not sleeping and um tending to my family mm-hmm. and uh talk about loves uh yeah joyce and elliot and keats mm-hmm. and yates um but uh, family you know and uh they have a way of, of putting things into perspective mm-hmm. and uh of really teaching you in a profound way uh what love is mm-hmm. uh, family can help you order your loves so i found myself uh since you mentioned genius in particular i had to i had to go to him and ask for an extension and um i hadn't slept in two weeks and uh you know i was feeding my son by syringe every 90 minutes over Mm. the night so that my wife would be able to get some sleep and Mm -hmm. um and uh kind of fumbling about like i couldn't even ask for and he kind of just put his hand out toward me and he said you know grace (laughs) and uh uh, he said you're a student yes but you're also a father and you're Mm -hmm. a husband and there are more important things then so just grace Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I don't know that you could get much better at a divinity school than, than, uh, an instantiation of grace. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, very grateful to him for, for that. And, um, I don't know if he remembers that. It's funny what's, <laughs> what students and teachers, uh, remember. Right, students yeah, often come yeah. back to me and say, remember that day? I'm like, no, I don't. <laughs> it, meant, it meant something profound to them, but you were uh, on a different track. That's right. Yeah. yeah. 
<clears throat> so yeah, that was my that was my time there, and that yeah. was that was great fun. Yeah. yeah. So, um, how did you end up in the MAT program, and that's uh, your third right uh, master's? Well, <clears throat> so after Yale, I thought I need to get a job <laughs> uh, and some health insurance. So. Um, <clears throat> went back to teaching. Uh, that wasn't really the the plan as as far as plans go. You know, thought I'd end up doing a PhD somewhere, but um, <clears throat> went back to teaching, and and that's when we were in DC, and uh, <clears throat> we ended up uh, being in DC Nova rather for about three three and a half years, and then we moved to Raleigh, North Carolina. So um, found a great little school down that way, and. Um, cost of living, you know, it's, it's a place where we could afford, <laughs> uh, to own a home, uh, could afford rent and paint, uh, because paint <laughs> is rather expensive. Um, and I ended up at this little school that, uh, claims to be in the Episcopal tradition. Uh, not really sure what that means. Um, cause they're not, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> There was a. I, I came in with a, a new headmaster mm -hmm. uh, called Jonathan Yonan, and uh, he had just come from Eastern. He was he was the dean of the Templeton Honors College at Eastern University, mm -hmm. and uh, he loved that I had a background in classical education, mm -hmm. and uh, was hoping that the the school there would become classical. Uh, didn't quite happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's it's a shame, uh, but um, you know there's a lot of people out there that are just afraid of classical education. They don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, they they don't necessarily like that their students um, grab after grades. They don't they don't like the AP. But that like what else is there? Yeah. Right. Yeah. How else is, is my kid gonna get into UNC if he doesn't take as many AP classes as mm -hmm. possible? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for for a while we tried very much to sort of transform the school and make it into a, a classical school, but it just wasn't in the cards. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fine. You know, there's different different approaches, I suppose. Um, but he, you know, he he pulled me aside and and, and said, okay, so the way that you teach and and um, <clears throat> your background in, in classical ed, we we want more people like you here, mm -hmm. uh, right? Um, and I'm trying to figure out different ways to do things. Would you would you be interested in going to check out this program? Would you? He pitched it to me as, would you vet this program? <laughs> <laughs> and I ended up doing the program. Uh, <clears throat> so kudos, thorough vetting. Uh, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I suppose on the one hand, the the hope was that I'd. Uh, meet people that I'd be able to inspire and recruit down to our school. Um, also, I'd be able to, to bring sort of reports back to the school community and promote mm -hmm. the program and encourage young teachers to, to go and do it. Get, um, get further training there. Yeah, yeah. Classical teaching. Absolutely, yep. yeah. So, uh, and that's when I met Brian Williams. Uh, and we've, we've become friends since then. But um, so I went and, and started taking um, some of the summer courses mm -hmm. in the, the Templeton MAT, Masters of Arts in, in Teaching and Classical Education. <clears throat> and um, it's it's almost like you need to teach for, a, I, th I think you need to teach a little bit mm -hmm. before you do a program like that. Mm -hmm. uh, I was the I was not only the oldest person <laughs> mm -hmm. in that initial cohort, but um, I had, you know, 
uh, years of experience as a teacher mm-hmm. uh, more more so than than the other people there. I felt yeah. like the old the old guy in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if you get a couple years of teaching under your belt and you kind of you know have a taste for the classroom, then when you go and you begin thinking about okay, so let's talk about pedagogy. Right? Yeah. It's one thing to talk about. Um, how to run a seminar if you haven't had to run them for you know years on end. Yeah. Um, so it, I think the MAT is in many ways um, well, it, it provided out of the out of the three different degrees that I do have. It, it was sort of the most coherent program. Mm-hmm. Right, so the curriculum is is very thoughtfully laid out. There's courses on the transcendentals, mm-hmm. so you'll take a course on the true, one on the good, one on the beautiful, mm-hmm. um, and and approach the the history of and the philosophy of. Right, um, <clears throat> so the course on beauty, you know, begins with reading Plato, um, you know, the Hippias Major and the Symposium, and thinking about uh, the Ion and poetic inspiration. Uh, we did read um, the poetics and, and some tragedy. Um, brought us through Aquinas, brought us up to Jacques Maritain, mm-hmm. uh, who in Art and Scholasticism outlines, you know, what I think is is some of the best um, aesthetic thought of the 20th century. But mm-hmm. um, so you get those kind of courses. You also get uh, history and philosophy of education. <clears throat> So ancient and medieval education, and this will this will bring you through the classical tradition. So um, a lot of people that go to liberal arts colleges or even you know that do great books, they'll end up reading Plato and Aristotle, but they don't necessarily read Plato on teaching. Mm-hmm. Right? They don't they don't read um, Aristotle on you know <laughs> uh, like what what actually happens in in the the soul. Uh, when you learn something, mm-hmm. right? Um, so history and, and pedagogy of classical education, ancient and modern. Um, and that's a course that uh, Brian teaches, and I've, I've uh, TA'd for him a couple times, um, kind of co-taught little bits of it here and there uh, with him. And that's great, you know. Um, you'll encounter figures that really can prepare you to go back to your own community, your own yeah. classroom. Yeah. So uh, Isocrates, Hugh St. Victor, you know, um, People that, uh, when you're majoring in something like English or like history, you just you just won't encounter. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's that was a really I think that was a good that was a really good program. I'd, I'd uh, encourage anyone who's taught for a few years and is looking to get mm-hmm. a master's in education to think about those kinds of programs. Mm-hmm. There's you know Easterns was the first. There's a couple of them now. Yeah. Um, that are coming out in different places, but. It's so very different than your your typical MED. Yeah, uh, so yeah. much better and more yeah. substantial in many ways. But to actually equip you with the philosophy and the pedagogy um, yeah. to you know teach your students, but also to to teach your parents, yeah. right? Um, to to inform parents on what you're doing and why, uh, and to meet people that are like minded. That you yeah, know, an immense value there. Well, thank you for uh, letting me drag you through yeah. you know the journey uh, of your own past uh, it's uh, gracious of you the uh, let's let's uh, if you don't mind kind of come full circle when i first asked the question yeah. instead of answering it you jumped right into your favorite class ever uh, <laughs> which which is uh, you know a true uh, the, uh, true love uh, being exposed there i would imagine um, so if we could kind of wrap up with what what are your favorite one or two classes and and uh, 
you know, what stood out as um, things that you might say to any teachers who are still listening to the two of us um, <laughs> that was, you know, that you'd pass along as, uh, you know, things uh, that were wonderful to do with students. That course, uh, Art and Aesthetics, ultimately, it, it turned out to be a course that that looked at what, what I'll call the transformation of a tragedy into comedy, mm-hmm. right? So this was at a Christian school. Um, so I could, I could do certain things with uh, theology and, and Christian thinkers um, mm-hmm. that you might not be able to do depending on the school environment you find yourself in. Yeah. But we looked at the way that uh, right over the course of the year, tragedy and suffering can be... I don't want to say redeemed in art, right? But maybe transfigured, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. elevated in art. Um, <clears throat> Dante, of course, gives us uh, a, a profound image of this, right? It's it's the the comedy, mm-hmm. right? la commedia, uh, and and we see the tragedy in the first canticle, hell. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not the whole story, mm-hmm. and and for people that have the misfortune of only reading the Inferno, they, they really don't get Dante. Mm-hmm. Dante is not the poet of hell. Yeah. You know? I think yeah. Milton is much better there uh, <laughs> in many ways than Dante. Um, but it's purgatory. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are parts of the Paradiso that really sing, but it's, it's purgatory that yeah. is, um, oddly enough, right, <laughs> the most human of, mm-hmm. of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we begin to see uh, tragedy and suffering um, can give way to joy. Yeah. Right. It's the kind of joy that comes that you can only achieve through suffering. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, we looked at um, the Winter's Tale, uh, Shakespeare, the way that this engages Euripides. Uh, mm-hmm. It actually seems to relate to the Iphigenia play I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, won't, I won't give it away because it's magnificent. But in, in the Winter's Tale, the first half, is a sort of consummate tragedy. Mm-hmm. It's uh, <clears throat> it's almost as though uh, so Leontes uh, encourages his 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 friend to stay and and asks his wife you know get him to stay like we don't want him to leave he's been here like it's it's good to see him well she does so <clears throat> and then he looks at her and thinks too hot you know like <laughs> you've done too well in persuading surely something's going on and it's like <clears throat> he emerges from his office having read the rest of shakespeare mm-hmm. you know he he comes out and uh mistakes his own actual life for the play that is othello mm-hmm. right so there's there's some really interesting uh so i i i would say <clears throat> meta theatrical meta shakespearean right the the plays interact with each other in really curious ways that that scholars don't seem to to care as much about as uh, scholarship has changed recently, but um, it's it seems like he's engaging these other plays very intentionally. Well, it, everything goes terribly wrong, and and everybody dies, and you know there's a massive storm, exit pursued by a bear, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then old man time appears on stage, <laughs> and in couplets, right? So you get uh, it must be eight couplets, so sixteen sixteen lines, unless it's 16 couplets, I can't remember, <clears throat> um, comes and talks about 16 years passing, uh, and, and now Perdita, the child that was lost, right, uh, well, now she's, uh, you know, 60, she's come of age. And the second half of the play is, is a consummate comedy, mm. and uh, the denouement then is where the two meet and intersect, and, and um, 
it's very mysterious. Mm -hmm. it, it, <clears throat> it seems like you have to decide. If you were to produce the, the play, <clears throat> it, would, it would almost never work because you have to make decisions that when mm -hmm. you read drama, you don't have to, right? But if you're going to stage it, you have to say, okay, so does, is someone, <laughs> I don't want to give it away, right? But like, there's two possible ways to read the mm -hmm. ending and there's this ambiguity. But if mm -hmm. you stage it, you get rid of that ambiguity. Yeah. Right? And you, you say, it has to, to be this one or it has yeah. to be that one. Yeah. Right? Well, if you read carefully, I think that uh, neither interpretation is ultimately valid. Mm -hmm. It's, it is mysterious. There are things in the play that suggest it can't be option one and mm -hmm. that say it can't be option two. So you're left with this, like, what do we do? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's been called a problem play, uh, a romance. I, mm -hmm. I fancy it's a sort of tragic comedy. Um, but the way that these things <clears throat> interact with each other. Mm -hmm. So we get to the 20th century uh, and we look at three different Christian thinkers. Uh, Tolkien, Lewis, and uh, the smartest of the Inklings, Owen Barfield, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and that's what Lewis and, and Tolkien said. Uh, <laughs> also the last of them. Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. right. So for Tolkien, we read on fairy stories. And this is where he talks about, um, well, a number of things. But he says, ultimately, fairy tales aren't for children, mm -hmm. right? Uh, they're for adults. Um, children already know, they believe in fairies already, right? Mm -hmm. um, adults need to be taught to re-believe in these things. Mm -hmm. So this is where he uses uh, the word eucatastrophe. Right, yeah. Uh, right, coming out of uh, Aristotle's Greek, uh, catastrophe, katastrophe, right? It's a downward turn, mm -hmm. right? That's the, that's the moment uh, in the tragedy where things look like they're going well, and then it, there's that turn, and, and, the, and it's a decline. Unexpected sudden decline. That's right, yeah. 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 So the U catastrophe, right, good, the good catastrophe, and you go, how could there be a good catastrophe? Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, it's an essay that's well worth reading, but Tolkien says, well, the incarnation is the U catastrophe in human history. Yeah. And it's the crucifixion and resurrection, which is the U catastrophe of the life of Christ. Mm -hmm. And you go, okay, so that, moment, that downward turn where God himself is crucified and spat upon and right when everything is is at its bleakest. Mm -hmm. It's the worst moment you could possibly conceive of. You couldn't think of a, a more devastating sort of tragic mm -hmm. moment. Um, the man who came to save people is killed by those he came to say, reject it, mm -hmm. despise it. Uh, well, it turns out that that is the source of all of our hope, mm -hmm. of all of our redemption, mm -hmm. right? So that's you catastrophe. Um, <clears throat> and that's one way that tragedy can be transformed into comedy. Um, we don't know how, and it's often dangerous to try to articulate how, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I think what we do know is that in our suffering, we're somehow mysteriously brought into communion with Christ. Mm -hmm. We participate in his suffering somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's what enables Paul to say things like, I rejoice in my suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, well, then we look at uh, Lewis. Um, is theology poetry, is the essay. And uh, <laughs> he says, not very good poetry. <laughs> uh, and and he's, he's, he's right, of course. He goes, um, Greek and Roman myth are, are great. Uh, he says, Norse is, is in some ways better, but he prefers Irish, if I don't misremember. Um, <clears throat> but the, the sort of mythology that you get there is uh, it's better poetry. Um, and of course, uh, there's a turn in the essay. 
where he says, of course, even though that is true, Mm -hmm. right, uh, there still is value to uh, theology as poetry. Mm -hmm. And he points to the incarnation. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says, right, Tolkien says the incarnation is the eucatastrophe in human history. Lewis says the incarnation is when myth becomes fact. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the word put into flesh or coming down into the flesh. Right. Lewis says, "Well, no. Uh, it's when myth becomes fact. When myth enters into history." Mm-hmm. And you read through the essay, and you begin wrestling with this idea, and you go, "Okay, <clears throat> there's something about Hercules, mm-hmm. which um, is. Uh, let me phrase it this way: There's something that Hercules hints at, which is consummated in the actual life." And, um, <laughs> and, 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 and body and blood of Christ. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's another profound way to think about the incarnation. Yeah. Right. Uh, and then you get to Barfield and, uh, he'll just, he'll blow your mind. Um, that essay was, uh, philology and the incarnation. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, real quickly, Barfield's, <clears throat> essay um, looks at the way that language has changes over time, mm-hmm. right? So um, we use uh, language to describe purely natural things to begin describing internal emotional states, mm-hmm. right? <clears throat> so you think of, um, oh, she's enchanting, you know? Uh, and he says that um, somebody ceases to be enchanting in the uh, adverbial sense. Mm-hmm. Adjectival sense, sorry. Uh, When you recognize that they're enchanting you in a verbal sense, you're, Mm -hmm. oh, that's interesting. Okay. When somebody is literally casting a spell on you, right, that's (laughs) problematic. But so he he notes and he appeals to philosophers on every side of the spectrum to support this thesis, right? He says, nobody disagrees. This is the general movement in language. Um, But we, we get this move, this explanation of the inner in terms of the outer. Mm-hmm. So he says, even words that seem to have no material you know, relevance, um, if you go back far enough in the etymology, it turns out they did, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, you, you know, uh, even you think of things like, oh, that was left-handed. And you go, mm-hmm. what's the, uh, well, in Italian, a la sinestre, which is where we get our word sinister from, is mm-hmm. right to the left. And you go, oh, that's fascinating. Well, so he, he notices as a philologist this change that occurs in language um, where things stopped moving outward and, and started moving inward. Uh, and he places it within 100, 150 years of um, what we might call, <laughs> well, the life and birth of Christ. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then he says, now imagine that somebody who didn't come from a Christian background but who had noticed this phenomenon in, in language, right? Imagine he turned to the New Testament and he read of the incarnation of a logos made flesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> would he not believe it? Would he not, mm-hmm. would he not come to think that um, that wasn't mere metaphor, mm-hmm. uh, but that actually accounted for the, the appearance that he'd, he'd perceived elsewhere? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, um, that course then, as we, as we thought about beauty, uh, as we thought about the way that tragedy can be transfigured into comedy, right? And why tragedy? Because it's the it's the most beautiful tragic mode, right? Mm-hmm. It's tragedy is the most beautiful mode, uh, mm-hmm. I should say. Um, 
Well, that was kind of the, the arc of the course. Uh, and, and we read a little bit of Frederick Buechner afterward, where he talks about the gospel as a fairy tale, comedy, and, and tragedy. Mm-hmm. He got the order wrong, but he stitches it all together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was that, that was that course. So that was a required ninth grade. 10th grade. Required 10th grade course. Um, it sounds heavy and intense, uh, certainly delightful. Um, how many, um, you know, what was the journey like for, for the students who, how do, you, how do you win them over? Those essays that you're describing are at the end of, yeah. the, uh, of the plays, uh, the literature. So it sounds like, you know, heavy engagement with literature, uh, the actual tragedies, and jo- you know, and then very theoretical at the end. Sure. What was that journey like for students? Uh, and, and how it sounds, you know, like you're very successful winning, winning them over. You enjoyed it tremendously, which generally indicates some students enjoyed it tremendously. Sure. Um, what, what were some of the keys? Because I could try to teach that class, I guarantee you. And, uh, you know, as it's such a high goal, um, it, it could fall very flat. Mm, yeah. You know, what, what were some of the... Well, you know, I'm sure in, in some ways it did fall flat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think every student loved it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, a, a lot of students from, from those three years uh, stay in touch and they reach mm-hmm. out and, um, you know, we, we talk about what they're reading now and uh, mm-hmm. they'll talk about how different things that they encountered set them on their own mm-hmm. paths in ways that neither of us could have predicted. Mm-hmm. But um, I think, uh, I mean, to, to answer your question, students rise to, <laughs> they have a tendency to rise or to fall to expectations, mm-hmm. right? So <clears throat> if you're the kind of teacher that uh, gives out study guides, mm-hmm. You're gonna <laughs> you're gonna find that you have the kind of students that need to be given study right, guides. Right. Yeah. Right. Self-fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if you're the kind of teacher that um, begins with Plato, mm-hmm. you're gonna find that you have students that are able to read Plato. Mm-hmm. So I think the best thing to do is to is to give students access to the to the best stuff mm-hmm. and to treat them as though they're not um, they don't need to be talked down to. Right. Yeah. Uh, but do do I mean it's a struggle. You have to <clears throat> you have to bring things down so that they're just out of reach, mm-hmm. right? So um, there's certain things I just absolutely wouldn't do with uh, mm-hmm. Plato, for instance, since I mentioned him, right? Um, I wouldn't assign the uh, the Republic, especially mm-hmm. sophomore year, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but um, we spent, you know maybe two days talking about a paragraph uh, yeah, from yeah. the statesman. Right? I think that's what it was. Uh, Socrates says that beauty is found in the observance of measure. Mm-hmm. And we spent two days on that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So getting them to actually access the, the primary text, this, yeah. Is, yeah. Know, this is what gets me excited about humanitas, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Because that's what it's aiming to do is to, yeah. is to make those primary sources accessible. But... Um, to speak of these things not as though they're artifacts, but as though they're living documents, because mm-hmm. that's that's really what they are at the end of the day. You've used words like inhabiting, and, mm. uh, yeah, yeah. 
So you've got uh, some uh, inhabiting of intentional, you know, manageable, but, right. but spending time, the time it takes to, to, you know, get into a paragraph. Right. You know? Yeah. And uh, Plato, Aristotle. And then, of course, <coughs> I think the, the plays and, and some of that sort of uh, is even more inhabitable. I sure. I can easily imagine uh, sure. that bringing the students in, you know, dwelling yeah. in a story. And then the very intense kind of th theoretical. Yeah. Uh, but but incredibly um, beautifully aligned, you know, and clearly intentional yeah. essays that you describe from the Inklings at the end. Uh, quite a journey. Yeah, yeah, and there's other little things you do along the way, right? So uh, you begin every class by reciting a poem, mm -hmm. and the students don't ever get the poem; they don't ever read it. They just mm -hmm. they learn it by listening. That's yeah. how they learn songs in the radio. That's how, right. I mean, a bunch of people are talking about this uh, at the moment, but. Um, so they come to inhabit a poem, yeah. right? So every class I ever teach begins with uh, but William Butler Yeats's Adam's Curse, right? And I found that I never set out to memorize it, but mm -hmm. um, it was in Virginia, actually, when I realized I don't need to read the poem. I can recite the poem <laughs> just because I've been doing this for, you know, so yeah. many years. But so you're having years. students recite. Yeah. yeah. So I'll recite and they'll recite with me. Right? And okay. they come to learn yeah. the poem over for yeah. sometimes, if it's a short poem, a week. You know? yeah. Sometimes it's three weeks. Um, you you give them a beautiful image, right? Yeah. Uh, so you, every Monday you, you give them a beautiful painting. Mm -hmm. And it can be related to topically, right? So if you're doing something with a tragedy, that, you know, it's a depiction of some of the characters. for, mm -hmm. And you, you, you teach them how to sit in front of it, how to read it. Yeah. So that takes half an hour. Yeah. Um, and it's painful at first, but then they come to enjoy it and they come to see things for themselves. And you don't have to do much at that point. You just have yeah. to create the space in which, right? You do the same thing with music. Yeah. So uh, So this course would have incorporated all of mm, it. Absolutely. That. Yeah. Yep. Well, yep. that's beautiful. Thank you so much yeah. for your time. Thank you so much for listening to the Classical U podcast. Please do check out our website, classicalu.com and our teacher magazine, Altum. We hope you've enjoyed these conversations with presenters and live learning event hosts with Classical Youth.